Now, well, this is Current Yield, Grant's interest rate observer of the air. And I am Jim Grant. Uh, and with me, as usual, Eric Whitehead at the control panel, the great deputy editor of Grant's, Evan Lorenz, and Phil Grant, who edits and uh, produces and conceives all those things that almost daily grants the invaluable daily, nearly daily companion to people in the market. So I don't know about you guys, but I've been uh, feeling a little bit competitive about this podcast of ours. I hear that uh, Ted Cruz has got this impeachment podcast that's generating like millions and millions of listeners, maybe fewer next week, but still. And then there's uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop Wellness podcast, mm-hmm. which is just cleaning up in ratings. And I, She's so, got a Netflix show too. Yeah. And um, I, don't know, I, I think we can do better. I think we can do better. And I was thinking about what could uh, propel us into the Paltrow-esque rating sphere. And I thought, well, of course, we are uh, going on a campaign. And that campaign is to strike the word impossible from the dictionary. As it is, impossible does figure in the dictionary. It's in the Oxford English Dictionary. And here's what the OED says about uh, the word impossible. First of all, it's an adjective. Mm-hmm. It means not possible, uh, that cannot be done or affected, that cannot exist or come into being, that cannot be in existing or specified circumstances. Now, that makes sense. And uh, what uh, prompted this was, Evan, something you said around the other day. It was, uh, was a report that, uh, that Greece had issued three-month treasury bills, that's a yield, whatever the yield was, the most striking thing was the sign in front of the yield. It was actually a minus sign. So 26-week bills yielding minus five basis points. And uh, so this brings me to the mathematical meaning of the word uh, impossible. Having no possible or real value, imaginary. So that kind of comports a little bit with the Greek uh, treasury. They might be onto something. Yeah. Uh, There's a third meeting of uh, impossible in the OED, and that's kind of impossible to deal with, to carry out, and to practice. Uh, It's a little less formal meaning. It means uh, kind of out of the question. So, for example, there's the the use of impossible that, uh, Phil, your sister, our eldest child, Emily Grant Turner, is turning 40 this year. Now, that is impossible. A man as young as I is going to have a 40-year-old child. So that's another one. So I I was thinking about the impossible in financial terms. What that means is uh, something that uh, physically can't... Well, well, here's here's an example of this. And I I want you to to read this particular passage from a Grant story. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, that's Grant's interest rate observer, the invaluable twice-monthly periodical, now in its 37 years. uh, The go to destination for every literate, interested, searching, enterprising investor. There's room still on our circulation. So uh, subscribe. So Evan, please. So I'm reading from the April 18th, 2014 story that summarizes Marty Fritzen's comments at our spring 2014 conference, uh, end quote. Defaults tend to come in surges of four or five years, Fritzen continued. The 2008-2009 surge was unique for its brevity. We actually had a situation where the default rate went from a record level to below average the very next year, Fritzen said. I would submit that is physically impossible, but it did actually happen. And I think that the only conceivable explanation is the Fed's extraordinary intervention. It enabled companies that should have failed a long time ago that were created through leveraged buyouts in the tail end of the boom prior to the Great Recession. A lot of those companies should have failed and didn't because the Fed came in and interjected so much credit into the system. It's a simple fact. Yeah. So um, impossible in in our line of work means something you can't conceive of. And I think that speaks to perhaps the um, uh, the circumscribed imaginations of so many of us, I certainly include myself, you have a worldview, and in the, this worldview, certain things can happen, others can't. So I came into the market many decades ago, and my first uh, experience was as a uh, clerk on a bond desk. I just got out of the Navy. I wasn't even 21 years old, and I was, I was uh, being introduced into the bond market by 
my elders who themselves had had experience uh, after you know, in the starting the 1950s. And what they said was approximately this. I said to, I, to my question, I said to them, is there enough money to buy all this stuff? They said, yeah, never worry about that. There's always enough money. <laughs> well, that, it turns out that that kind of is true, right? There's, right. Always, there's always enough credit. I didn't think, uh, I don't think I asked them to distinguish between money and credit at the time, but that distinction is certainly useful, useful now. So what's that, what else is impossible? Oh, I know, Tesla achieving a market cap of 116 billion. That didn't happen, right? It didn't happen yesterday, at least. Yeah, I think that was—I think that was just some sort of bad dream. <laughs> you know, uh, the trouble with being a thought leader is that sometimes you just are full of whipped cream, and um, and there's no one to remind you of that fact uh, in the moment. I, for example, the person sitting around this table that uh, happens to be the authority on Tesla is a fellow you never hear from. That's Eric Whitehead, noted world traveler to the most peculiar destinations. But, but about a year ago, Eric uh, bought a Tesla 3, a Model 3, and God, we thought that was funny. Ha, 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 ha. You're on the waiting list for a Tesla? That means you're an unsecured creditor. Um, that is how we teased him, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What did Eric say? Nothing. Not much. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> now he is- Just the, absorbed our slings and arrows. For all we know, Eric was also accumulating Tesla on the yeah. sly. Just waiting patiently for his yeah. moment triumph. Right. He's using autopilot on the easy road. That's it. So Eric, uh, what other stocks do you like now? Really? Oh, and what else? <sighs> Seriously? Oh, that's okay, a okay. slam dunk. Yeah, okay. okay. Oh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I, I would uh, bring you into this little side discussion, except uh, it's only for subscribers to grants. And I can't uh, verify that everyone on the wire is a subscriber now, although certainly you're welcome to. But Eric, uh, thank you for your forbearance and not uh, rubbing. So that's another one that, that uh, didn't have. Phil, can you think of anything that's impossible? Uh, I can, and um, I've got a couple in mind. Um, last week, triple C plus rated Altice, the uh, European uh, telecom roll-up, issued uh, high yield debt due in, uh, in 2028, so eight-year high yield bonds, at a 4% coupon. Uh, that is uh, a, easily a record low yield for a triple C rated issuer in Europe or indeed anywhere. What does triple C mean, Evan? Pretty far down the junk line. Yeah, that's... Uh, uh, not, Bo not bottom of the barrel. Bottom of the barrel, exactly. So a uh, 4% coupon and a 443 basis point spread. For reference, the uh, in, in the United States, the Bloomberg Barclays triple C rated index has a uh, spread over treasuries of 881 basis points. So almost exactly double uh, the spread that Altice was uh, was able to get so, away with. So paying. Altice must be twice as good. That's right. That's right. So, well, how about in the uh, in the sovereign way? Europe is is full of impossibilities. Indeed. Uh, be beyond that Greek issue, which, uh, which sort of got our... Uh, piqued our attention. I've got a, a trio, all in a different sort of credit profiles. Uh, we have AAA Switzerland uh, has has debt due in 2030, 0.5% uh, coupon. That issue is traded up to 113 cents uh, on, on the Swiss franc for a price to yield negative 77 basis points. This is due in 2030. What's the doubling time of money invested? It's minus 77 basis points, Devin. Oh, it'd be what you divide it by 72. So what is it? Roughly a hundred years? You lose half your money? Yeah. Sounds... Oh, I meant to say half. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Half-life has a different meaning. All right. So what's so the, yes? Next we have uh, uh, euro denominated. So that's that's a that's a Swiss. That's dominated. That's yeah. That's that's Swiss francs at least. Right. So anyway, uh, we have on the euro side of things, we have double A rated France, where um, uh, we have people in the streets every week, cops and firemen fighting one another. There are twenty sixty six. That's twenty sixty six maturing debt. Uh, the coupon is one and three quarters. That's priced at one hundred thirty eight cents on the euro to yield uh, positive seventy seven basis points. At least that's positive. So twenty. 
2066 maturity. I'll be, uh, I'll be 120. Yes, that's right. Uh, you, you can. Uh, that's something to look forward to. Yeah. Um, just for quickly for reference, uh, the the euro as a currency was uh, brought into circulation on Jan 1, 1999. So, uh, so it's it going to be quite an experiment. So it can drink this year, right? That's right. 21. Exactly. It, it, it's 21 and, some and one us, month. Some of us have, have suspected it was already nipping at the bottle. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And to wrap up my little soliloquy here, uh, tr- uh, tr- uh, down the credit spectrum, triple B rated Portugal, which uh, I, I, I meant to uh, pull up their borrowing costs in 2011, but I, f- I forgot to. It was quite quite high. Well, they're high, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, they're, they're, they're now borrowing uh, on the euro uh, 26 basis points for debt due in 2030. That's triple B rated Portugal. So that's where we're at. Before we leave the Eurozone, there's one last thing I'd like to pile in on, which is uh, Greece. So Portugal's triple B, which is kind of the bottom end of investment grade, but Greece is a double B minus, which is sub investment grade, but at least it's kind of the upper echelons of junk. So Greece had to pay 37.1% for its 10 year um, bonds. That's positive, was it? Positive. 37.1% in March of 2012 at the peak of the Euro crisis. Now today, Greeks 10 year bond yields 1.14%. Now that's in Euros, but the uh, US Treasury uh, that, that that's ten years yields one point five five percent as we're uh, we're speaking right now. The U.S. is mostly AAA rated. Um, and just to give a couple of other stats, could you repeat those uh, respective yields, Greece and yeah. uh, U.S. Treasury ten year? So ten year yields for U.S. one point five five percent. Ten year yields for Greece one point one four percent. So Greece is roughly fifty percent better than the U.S. Nicer beaches. In twenty nineteen, according to the IMF, Greeks' uh, government debt to GDP was one hundred and seventy seven percent. As we go to uh, our speaking right now. The U.S. gross government debt to GDP is 108%. And if we net out the intergovernmental holding, it's 80%. That that seems pretty remarkable to me. But in Greeks' favor, the Greeks are expected to pay down their debt. The IMF believes the uh, debt to GDP is going to fall from 177% in uh, 2019 to 167% in 2021. The CBO, on the that's other hand- That's what the IMF says. That's what the IMF says. The Congressional Budget Office, on the other hand, says the U.S. Uh, red ink's going to flow as far as the eye can see. Yeah, well, the, uh, the uh, CBO was out this week with a report saying that uh, there'll be a trillion dollars of deficit this year and in the subsequent years they will will average a trillion three for 10 years or over that and uh the cbo by definition doesn't predict recession so they're expecting if we keep growing at like three percent per year for the next decade that's how deficits will be if if it turns out to be worse then it's worse is there any demographic event to consider in the 2020s there's a few. So if you actually go to the um, Office of Management and Budget, which is uh, one of the White House's office, one of the tables on their website will actually show you the uh, trust funds for Social Security and Medicare. And one thing you might note is in 2020, the with the year we're in right now, it's the first year or going forward that we are expected to have red ink and we're supposed to have red ink every year going forward as more and more baby boomers retire. So those intergovernmental holdings that uh, hold down the gross government debt are going to start going away. Hmm. Going away is not what Zip Recruiter does, by the way. Going away is uh, on the, quite on the contrary. Except recruiters in the hiring business. Right, they're here for you. All right. Uh, well, hiring is a challenge, but uh, there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart, and growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. Cafe Altura's COO Dylan Miskowitz uh, experienced how challenging hiring can be after unsuccessfully searching for a director of coffee for his organic coffee company. Then he switched to ZipRecruiter and saw an immediate difference. And you can too by signing up for free at ZipRecruiter.com grant. ZipRecruiter does not depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Right, they're here for you. And its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply for your job so you get qualified candidates faster. In fact, after posting his job on ZipRecruiter, Dylan said he was amazed by how quickly great candidates were applying and found his new director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. ZipRecruiter 
the smartest way to hire. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at our web address. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash grant, ZipRecruiter.com slash grant. You know, Evan, um, now that I look back on it, uh, every decade has featured at least one major certainty and uh, uh, conversely, one definite impossibility. Um, let's see. I can name at least one from my career. I was told repeatedly in 2006 that house prices cannot go down on a nationwide basis. It just doesn't happen. Well, that wasn't true. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. let's, let's go back a little bit. Let's, uh, we'll get to that one. That, that, that was a good one. That was a that was your trillion dollar plus uh, misconception. <laughs> plus, plus, plus. <laughs> Turns out you could. <laughs> yeah, but um, in the uh, 1950s and 60s, there was a conviction in uh, the upper echelons of American finance and indeed in, in Washington and uh, throughout uh, much of the uh, financially advanced world. We use that word uh, advisedly, advanced. And this conviction was that the world monetary system was uh, properly and necessarily grounded in uh, in a dollar that was exchangeable into something uh, beyond uh, small change that was collateralized by something beyond good intentions. And uh, this formed the basis of the monetary system that was uh, created after the World War II, or actually in the, during, in the very fraught year of 1944, the delegates met in Bretton Woods and uh, conceived a system in which the dollar alone would be convertible into gold at a fixed rate, and the other currencies would be convertible into dollars, likewise at fixed rates. And that was the basis of the system. And it got off to a ragged start. It wasn't until the 50s that uh, all these currencies stopped uh, being devalued and uh, chafing around for a better exchange values. And uh, so this thing kind of congealed in the 50s. Um, there were 10 or so years of uh, smooth functioning in Bretton Woods. But until the very end, there was a view, I, I certainly held it implicitly if I did not examine it very closely, that uh, except for uh, this collateralized uh, anchor, the currencies were kind of flying off into the inflationary uh, stratosphere. And, and there was, to be sure, some of that in the 70s, a lot of that in the 70s. But look, be behold, since then, the world has kind of stumped along on a, a purely fiat basis, to be sure, with the intermittent collapses and all manner of financial drama. But it turns out that uh, you could, indeed, we have got along uh, functionally quite well without uh, anything resembling the classical, let alone the uh, adulterated but still slightly functional gold standard. I personally am persuaded that we will revert to a collateralized monetary system, the gold basis of which will be gold and silver. But that's, uh, uh, I don't think it's a quixotic view, but it's certainly a kind of impossibility itself as conceived by today's high echelons of finance. So that was uh, that was a monetary view in the 50s and 60s, and then it was shattered in the 70s and 80s, and, and we have uh, arrived a new set of possibilities, certainties, and impossibilities. So that's that's uh, money bonds. Ah, the sure-fire analysis of the crisis of the rise in yields in the 70s and the very early 80s was that the federal debt was anathema. It was the proximate underlying cause of this bear market in bonds that had begun in 1946 and that persisted for, as it proved to be, 35 years. You should have seen the ink spilled over the federal budget and the uh, the wringing of hands and the deficit of hundreds of millions of dollars and the debt, my goodness, it might go to a trillion. So here we are a few years later, indeed 35 or so years later after uh, the bond market, uh, what have you got here? Evan has slipped me a piece of paper. 
So um, we now have not a trillion of public debt. I think that uh, I think that was 1981. We hit the first trillion. Now it's uh, in gross terms 23.245. And I dare say, since the podcast started, it's become 23246. But it turns out that uh, the more the debt, the lower the yields. At least that has been the way it has gone. That's another inversion of possible and impossible. What other uh, lifelines of conviction have we clung to in the market? I, I seem to remember a certain country uh, on the Pacific Rim that was supposed to dominate the world in the 80s. Ah, yes, Japan. I have a story there. So um, our least well-attended conference was one we did with a fellow named Akio Makuni, who was the head of uh, uh, Nippon Bond Rating Service in Japan. Japan Bond, anyway, he's a Japanese bond uh, rating aid guy, and very thoughtful uh, and very bearish on his own country's credit. And we held this at the Union League Club in New York. And uh, um, my memory says it's 1989, but that might be a flattering memory. It certainly was close to the peak in Japan, which happened to be New Year's Eve, 1989. And we got like 35 people, including like Emily and Philip, aged in like, uh, took, <laughs> I think we brought the dog. Yeah, yanked him out of grade school. <laughs> to go. It was, it was a, a, should we say, not a success, but it was certainly a, a, a fairly, for us, a fairly well-timed event to point at what we were certain to be not the world's next dominant economy, owing to the absolutely shocking and unsustainable, to use that very modern word, debt structure and credit structure in Japan. We could see it was a bubble of the first magnitude waiting to pop and at length it did. So, uh, and uh, oh, that was the, that was the um, uh, Japan about ready to take over the world. So fast forward a couple of years, many years in fact, and Ken Shirley who preceded uh, most of you at this table at, uh, at Grants and I and the late Alex Porter decided that we would start a fund to invest in the, uh, in the detritus of the great Japanese bubble. These are value stocks trading in the market for less than net current assets. The year was about 19, uh, 98, I guess. And Japan was on its uppers. Uh, there was a great deflation scare. Uh, stock market was uh, was uh, near its, I, I'm sure, I can't recall now if it was at its lows, but certainly was much lower than it had been in the heady years of Japan's supposed imminent dominance of all the world. And we began buying these um, uh, these uh, net nets, that is to say, companies value in the market at less than net current assets. Uh, how could you go wrong? Well, we, what we didn't reckon on was the tempo of change in Japan. Uh, to invoke musical terms, that uh, tempo was not so brisk as adagio, which, as you musical listeners know, is very slow. It was closer to the tempo you might call grave, which is uh, customary for funeral dirges. So we waited and waited, and these net nets uh, became much more valued because the book value was increasing year by year internally but the stock price was basically stuck where we had found it. I'm just generalizing now. We had some good years, but uh, our limited partners, very, very patient, but uh, we operated on the certainty, reciprocal of impossibility, that value outs, that value at last redeems itself, and that uh, good things happen to cheap stocks. Well, okay things happen to these cheap stocks, but not such a level of okay as to, <laughs> as to uh, 
cause us to persist with this project after about a dozen years. So um, the longer one is in this market, the humbler one becomes about uh, certainties and impossibilities. What else we got here, Phil? We got, uh, yeah, got uh, long-term capital management that was uh, staffed by geniuses. Uh, that was certain to uh, succeed. It did not succeed, but at least uh, not uh, at the end. If I remember in the book, they kept on finding that their portfolio didn't have enough volatility, so they kept on needing more exposure until they got the right amount of volatility. And then they did. They found it. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows less about what they're talking about? Eric Whitehead, one guy or 16 guys? Yeah, 16. Eric just said 16, of course, because they reinforce each other, right? <laughs> what don't they know about? The future. And the more you tell yourself you know about it, the worse the outcome. Uh, although you have to have a view to be sure, but that view must be intelligent and uh, humbly hedged intellectually and financially. So I see where else we go. Oh, yes, the efficient market hypothesis. That was a, uh, that was, oh, Evan, you're a, you are a holder of the uh, Chartered Financial uh, Analyst Certificate, right? Yes, I am a CFA charter holder in uh, good standing. Um, you pay your dues, do you? I actually think you pay my dues. Ah. <laughs> what a good boss. Eric, we'll talk, we'll talk about that a little later on the, on the yeah, P&L. No, so, so the efficient market hypothesis is that all information gets discounted in stocks uh, in a relatively quick and efficient way. And I always wondered, like, how did that explain 2008? And someone told me at the time, well, people are just changing their discount rates dramatically intraday. Yes, indeed. They did. Yeah. Went from like a 5% to a 15% some days. <laughs> yeah. I've, my always, I've always, uh, I have always, I have come to see or believe at least that uh, markets are just as efficient, just as coldly detached and analytical and calculating as the people who operate in them. I think um, that the market is a great machine for teaching traders humility. It also has an important role in allocating capital. And anytime you hear somebody too sure about themselves saying anything about finance, you should run away. Right. So what uh, to, to wrap this impossible theme up, what are the certainties and the impossibilities of today? What, let's, let's start with a certainty or two. Name one. Deficits don't matter. Right. Got another one? Uh, you, you'd mentioned this earlier, but the logic behind it's strangely compelling. The idea is that if there's too much debt, interest rates can't rise because if interest rates rise, they crush the ability of um, borrowers to actually repay the debt. Therefore, interest rates go down. But it, it's this one circle where you can keep on getting more and more debt and lower and lower interest rates, and it just goes on forever. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, that would seem to, uh, to be a theory without a central bank. And let us say you are Jay Powell. I'm certainly glad you're not, Evan. Ditto, uh, Evan, uh, Eric, and Phil. Glad to. But the Fed is uh, concerned about uh, so much. And uh, the idea of a deflation is just anathema. Deflation meaning that the price level actually falls, not that it doesn't rise enough to satisfy the Fed's uh, self-imposed 2% inflation target, which I gather target is uh, being raised. Yeah, now, now it's symmetrical. Yeah. Uh, symmetrical means if they underperform like they have in the last couple of years, they want to make it up in the next couple right, of years. Right, right, right. And, and uh, the implicit uh, or the unspoken premise, of course, they control all this. But um, say that uh, this latent deflation becomes manifest and the Fed decides it must do something. Well, I mean, is, is it so far-fetched to imagine that uh, uh, that this monetary modern monetary theory idea that the immediate monetization of the public debt, that is to say, the Fed's actual outright purchase of government securities with new cash, that's so, so far-fetched. It's, it's, it's happening now, virtually. I mean, they don't call it that, but every time the Fed buys a security with money that didn't exist before, that is monetization. Yeah. Uh, now we have the program formerly known as QE. Right. Um, anyway, so the, the deficits don't matter. That uh, the Fed, I would say another certainty is the Fed is in, is in control of events. And that um, 
a looming alleged certainty is that there is no more boom and bust. That came out of Davos, uh, the Twitter machines of not one, but two very, very lofty people in finance. It was, uh, yeah, there were a television interview. Yeah. Um, as we're closing out January, I believe this is the month 127 of the U.S. expansion. This makes it the longest expansion, taking out the dot-com boom, which was 120 months. This goes back at least until 1850. So this is basically the longest boom that we've been able to record. So it's never going to end, right? Oh, never. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. On behalf of uh, Grant's Interest Rate Observer, I am Jim Grant, and uh, talk to you soon. Thank you.